a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a podcast where we break down what is happening in the world every week. It is a different topic. Dr. Keith, something you are passionate about, you want to make people understand the basics of really make it accessible for any person who listens to this podcast. And thank you for listening, by the way. Uh, my name's Kate Mack. We've been doing this podcast together for a number of years and then worked in television as well. And you're always, obviously, you know, you're very humble, but you have been a commentator in Australian media for decades now in international relations, a couple of PhDs, yeah, very, very well skilled at what you do, Dr. Keith. There ain't nothing you don't know, <laughs> essentially. All right. So today we're going to talk about the amazingly bright future of Australia. <laughs> um, poorer, older, smaller. Yeah. <laughs> this is um, the report that was issued in June uh, by the Australian Treasury. It's called the Intergenerational Report. And I think paints a, a gloomy picture for the future of Australia, but it certainly raises a number of issues that need to be addressed. So it was the treasurer of the day, Peter Costello, who published the first report. That was back in 2002. And then about roughly every five yearly intervals, we get a new report being issued. And the argument should be behind the report that the report should serve as a basis for long-term policy making which is rare in Australian politics where politicians have the concentration span of a flea. And here you've got Treasury bureaucrats saying, look, let's look at some of the long-term issues. And it also, each report every five years or so serves as a reminder about the increasing cost of social welfare, not the least aged care and health care. Unfortunately, the reports tend to be very quickly forgotten, although some may create a controversy for a few days. Um, so the report that was issued in 2015 by the then Treasurer, Joe Hockey, got sidetracked, I think you could say, because it omitted any reference to climate change. And it was that omission from the report, rather than the report itself, that generated the publicity. Looking at this year's one, uh, in economic terms, they're saying that the government response to COVID is not a short-term economic matter and there'll be no return to government surplus for the next 40 years. Now, that's an awfully long time in terms of economic change. But what I think what the Treasury is simply saying is that COVID is going to cast a long shadow over Australia for decades. And, and so it's foreshadowing slower economic growth in the next 40 years compared with the last 30 years. In social trends, they talk about a reduced predicted population growth. So if you go back to 2015, the intergenerational report predicted that by the year 2054, there would be 40 million people. Now, they're saying that by the year 2060, virtually five years later, it'll only be 38.8 million. So in other words, that yes, the population is going to continue to increase, but not at the rate that we have uh, seen in uh, recent decades. In fact, this is the first time in, in the 20 years since they started publishing the intergenerational report that there has been this downward revision of population projections. So that, that's one social trend. The other social trend is that Australians are expected to live longer. So a man who's born this year has a life expectancy 
of 81 years. By 2060, a man born in that year will go for virtually 87 years. So the man will live longer. A woman born this year is expected to go for about 85 years. And by the year 2060, when a woman is born, she will be uh, able to live to um, 89 years. So we're seeing people living longer in Australia. Of course, from a Treasury point of view, this is a bit worrying because you've got a, a decline in the proportion of working Australians. So at the moment, we have four workers for every welfare recipient. In the future, in 40 years' time, we will have only 2.7 workers. So we see, therefore, which is already happening in Japan and China, that we see how we're running out of workers and older people are living longer and therefore potentially a burden on the welfare system. And this then gives rise to this whole debate about can we afford the elderly? Uh, and, of course, we can. We're going to have to. Uh, we can't go around um, <laughs> <laughs> euthanizing people. But there may be a climate of expectation that builds up, you know, that you get older Australians who say, look, I've had a good life. Let me have a good death. And it is interesting how we are now in st at state level introducing voluntary euthanasia legislation, which we also see in some states of the United States. So some people who at the moment are undergoing really severe uh, illnesses are allowed the opportunity, if they want to, to have voluntary euthanasia. Uh, it's interesting, once you give people that assurance, quite often they don't exercise it. That's part of the unusual situation. But remember, we're looking at baby boomers. So baby boomers reinvented what it was to be a teenager when they were reached the 1960s. Then they've reinvented what it what superannuation is all about. There's a vast superannuation industry to cater for the baby boomers and a whole uh, property industry which is catering mainly for them, not the young workers. No, it's, it's the baby boomers who are sitting well on houses they're able to buy for a comparatively low price. And I think maybe baby boomers will reinvent death. They will just simply say, I've had a good life, now I'll have a good death. I do not want to end up on in an my terms. Center. Yeah. Yeah. So these are some of the issues that is being triggered. That's why I think the report is very useful because it, it gets us to focus on these long-term issues. Very different from the day-to-day -day political scandals that dominate our headlines at the moment. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. We're talking about Australia's future, poorer, older, smaller, <laughs> which doesn't sound great, um, but it, it is, it's not something, look, it's just almost accepting it, isn't it? Because once you accept something and come up with a solution for it, you can move past it, surely. Yeah. That's right. And, I, and for me, the value of this report is that it's simply saying, look, the government will be in debt. Live with that. Stop all your debate over indebtedness, which is what dominates so much, of, particularly if you think of election rallies, you know, who's going to pay for all of this? We're in a new era now. People have become reconciled to governments having large debts. The other thing that it says is that if, when they're saying, in effect, to the politicians, stop all your fussing over the level of government debt. It's going to be here for decades to come. Instead, focus on the real issue, which is how do you increase the size of the pie? In other words, how do you increase productivity? And that takes us into a whole new dimension 
about productivity. You know, there there is a whole question. Um, one of the guy who invented pen pals said, uh, "We were promised in the future flying cars, and all we've got is 140 characters." <laughs> in other words, you know, the big technological advance did not occur. All we've got is Twitter. So it's very interesting about the whole issue of uh, productivity. Um, that some economists are saying, "Look, hang on there." We will get an improvement in productivity. Okay, it's not obvious at the moment. Um, you're not getting the big breakthroughs that we had when we invented steam engines and combustion engines. But don't worry, we will get there. You've just got to have faith that somehow all this technological turmoil will um, increase the the productivity. And you've got other economists who are saying that, for example, is that uh, perhaps there are measurement failures. Perhaps we are becoming more productive. We're just not able to measure it because our economic measuring systems are so bad. You know, we've touched on in the past the whole question of gross national product. If I employ a housekeeper, I increase the gross national product. If I later marry her and stop paying her a salary, I reduce the gross national product. It just shows how, you know, inflexible, immature this economic statistics can be, right? So you've got a whole variety of issues there tied up with productivity. I recently had to give a talk on um, how we can increase productivity. Uh, how do we increase the size of the cake? These are not issues necessarily being raised in the inter intergenerational report. One obviously is greater use of information technology and automation. For example, we get rid of human drivers. Human drivers fall asleep at the wheel or they get drunk. So we'll have driverless vehicles. Now, that'll create all sorts of turmoil. The insurance industry will suddenly find a lot of its work gone because driverless vehicles don't fall asleep at the wheel, don't get, don't drive when they're drunk. Um, but also, of course, you get the reduced number of actual drivers. In the United States, driving a truck is one of the few well-paying jobs for non-college-educated Americans. So those jobs will go, and the roadside ecology will change. In other words, the need for a McDonald's store or whatever because obviously trucks won't need to stop for fast food. So there, there are swings and roundabouts, but what you're doing is removing the human element, and so you're reducing the cost, in this case, of moving goods from A to B. So one way simply is to have greater use of information technology and automation. Another one would be the greater use of genetically modified organisms, GM food. Again, very controversial. But that may be the way that we get this great leap forward in food because we're clearly, um, even if the global population starts to slow down, which it is, you've still got people who are getting richer and moving up the food chain. They need more than just rice or cereals or other cereals. Um, they want to have more elaborate foodstuffs, mm. which means that you've, you've got to grow the corn to feed the cattle in order to produce the steaks or whatever, the, the Wagyu's. The corn-fed cattle. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> thank you. So that's another issue. You know, do we have more genetically modified food? Another one is the whole question of the financialization of housing. In other words, in the old days, people bought a house for somewhere to live. Now we see houses being purchased because you can make money out of it because as, as the um, real estate speculators will tell you, House prices, as a rule, don't go down. Even during the COVID crisis, we've continued to see house prices increase in many Western countries. In fact, I think in all Western countries, 
house prices are increasing, even though we've had an economic slowdown in Western countries. The prices, nonetheless, continue to go up. So if you if you want to reduce the financialization of housing, in other words, to stop housing being um, a speculative item and instead drive that money out of housing into more productive areas, such as uh, investing in machining uh, for factories or GM food or whatever, then here are things that we could do here in Australia. One is to abolish negative gearing, the idea that you buy as an investment a property which whereby the tenants who are paying you rent do not pay enough to cover your mortgage payments. And so the government allows you to deduct that difference from your overall tax bill. That's called negative gearing. And so that's a way of of building up a, a property portfolio with the government assisting you in purchasing houses as a, uh, as an investment. Perhaps we could have tighter control over mortgage lending. Mortgage lending is is the primary way in which banks make money. Remember, banks invent money. That it's not government that prints the money. It's banks who create it and it's done as credit. And so we clamp down on their credit. Uh, production facilities. Perhaps we uh, introduce some form of central housing bank. In other words, we go back to housing commissions or council housing, as they were called in England, and actually provide housing for people, as, as you still see in Europe, Western Europe to this day, um, reintroduce death duties. Now, Australia is the only Western country uh, which has abolished death duties. So why, but that would be, oh God, imagine Keith, that would be hugely unpopular. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. The, these are the challenges that you've got. You want to drive up productivity. And make more money. And make more money and have money going into useful things. You know, if, what you're doing with the financialization of housing is just simply putting money through a cycle. It's not actually spilling out into anywhere useful and being used for, I don't know, buying machine tools for a factory or growing more food. If anything, we're actually losing our food growing land because of the expansion of the urban sprawl. So these are all some of the issues which which could be introduced. The other one, of course, which which we have touched on in this series, is introduce a universal basic income. In other words, everybody, when they turn, say, 18, will receive an automatic payment from the government. And that will cover a lot of the allowances and other payments that you would get from the government. And that'll go all the way through until the day you die. Now, for those of us who enjoy working, uh, we would refund that money through our tax system because the money would come to us, but we're paying taxes, income tax. And so the money will then, or company tax, and the money will then just go back to the government. But it means that uh, for some people who may never get a job in their lives, this is the risk. You've got youngsters leaving school for whom there will not be jobs. So they need to be trained in school to how to live off a a UBI. And, of course, you've got others. Uh, The standard example would be Silicon Valley, you know, the people, Hewlett and Packard, who just sit in their garage and invent a whole new computer system. And this is really what you want. The Swiss, when they ran a campaign, a referendum for a UBI a few years ago, had a slogan, what would you do if you knew your living expenses were taken care of? 
In other words, you, you've got a, a, a flat sum of money coming in and then you're, you're then free to be creative. Now, alas, some people are going to shoot that money up their arm in terms of heroin or whatever, but you'll have other people who say, this is fantastic. I'm going to invent a whole new computer system, as we saw in California. You know, the Steve Jobs of this world, Bill Gates, Hewlett Packard, etc. But you've got a variety of people who just with spare time did it on the side, whereas now we're saying the government will give you money, go away and work out how we're going to get into outer space or how we're going to mine the moon or whatever. So that that could unleash more productivity amongst people receiving UBI. So there are a number of, of issues that, that we could use to um, increase productivity, but they're all very, con- as you've said, they're very controversial. And remember, politicians have got a short concentration span. Uh, they're very much focused on day-to-day manoeuvring to do down their opponents. They're not taking a long-term vision. That's the value of this intergenerational report, that it does provide us with a, a scaffold for long-term thinking. And so I encourage people to to read the intergenerational report and then, of course, then to reflect on these bigger issues about how we're going to cope with things. I might just say the 2015 report omitted climate change. The most recent report acknowledges it but still doesn't quantify the change Uh, because there is an argument that we see in the United States now that you can actually create a lot more jobs in um, getting people ready to fight off climate change, you know, green technology and all that sort of stuff. So who knows, climate change, if it forces us to change our ways and introduce new technologies, might actually lead to the next big jump forward in, in economic productivity. Well, if you look at the stock market in Australia, some of the, the, the stocks have gone up the most in the last few years are all to do with renewable energies. Yep. So just be open-minded perhaps. Yeah, we've got to be open-minded. I think you've got to acknowledge that when you know coal is going to be with us for quite a while to come. Uh, coal is still very important for energy production. The writing might be on the wall, but it's going to take a long time before we close down the mining. If you look at what happened in Britain, uh, which invented large-scale coal mining, that began, say, around 1750, and that stayed with Britain really until Mrs Thatcher came to power in 1979. She, by the way, was a scientist who didn't have to be convinced about climate change. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have. She was called the green goddess at number 10. and but, but her concern about coal was not so much coal itself as the power of the coal unions. In Great Britain, politicians were always told there are three interest groups you never take on in British politics, uh, nurses, sailors, and coal trade unions. Well, she took on the coal trade unions by just simply getting Britain off coal. But it took 40 years, and, of course, she was dead by the time the British had moved. So we're looking at a a long-term transition policy. But the problem in Australia is that nobody thinks in that sort of long-term way. We've got 600 years' supply of good quality coal. We've still got a lot of coal, and there's still a lot of a market for it. But perhaps we do need a a long-term transition program including taking care of the miners and the miners' villages, et cetera. This is where Barack Obama went wrong. You know, he just closed down coal places, which Trump then came along and exploited. So he transitioned them into a new career. Yeah. Create jobs. Yep, you create know? jobs, give people plenty of educational opportunities, people to re- opportunities for people to reinvent themselves. There's a lot that can be done, but we've just got to get politicians to move away from focusing on sex scandals and all the other trivia 
which unfortunately the media are obsessed about, and get focused on this big picture. And this intergenerational report does help us to focus on that big picture. Thank you, Dr. Keith. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.